Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm Coach Andrew Poretz from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission, to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams and with my coaching, help you to manifest those dreams into reality. You can visit my website at www.myfuturecoach.com and follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash coachandrew. If you're listening live and you have a question, the phone number here is 646-929-2893. You'll be able to listen to the show on the phone, and if you press the number 1, I'll know you have a question. We also have a live chat room that's right on the show page where you can feel free to join in. My guest tonight is fellow Blog Talk Radio host, Dr. Donna, the host of Ask Dr. Donna. Dr. Donna leads with style. Having conducted 15 years of research, she understands the components of achieving leadership success. Dr. Donna has the ability to transform people and organizations. Her realistic approach in every situation is different than most. By using the colorful leadership principles she has developed, now the everyday leader can become extraordinary. You can learn more about Dr. Donna at www.thepowerstarters.com and follow her on Twitter at twitter.com slash askdrdonna, that's D-R-Donna. Dr. Donna, are you with us? I am with you, and I am excited to be here this evening. How are you, Coach Andrew? I'm fantabulous. I'm so glad to have you on my show. Well, that's wonderful. I've been waiting for this for about five weeks now, so this is really (laughs) great. This is the way to bring in the fall season. So I'm going to start with uh, one thing is that your vision from the PTA to the boardroom, anyone can lead because leaders are made, not born. And uh, that's a real distinction from what a lot of people say. So I'd like to hear more about that. Well, actually, my, my path into leadership is a fluke, really. I was in high school and went to a college prep high school, and one of the graduation requirements was that we had to have some type of PE course to fulfill our, our our PE. And I am I have two left feet and I can't dance. I'm not athletic at all, so there was no reason for me to try out for dance or in gymnastics or any type of PE courses. I was down to two courses. One was J R O T C and the other one was gym. I was vain even back then and so I knew that I did not want to take a PE course in the middle of the day, ruining my look and my hair. I opted for junior ROTC. I, I made a promise to myself you know, I would just do two semesters and then I would be finished. And I only had to wear those ugly black shoes and that green uniform on Wednesdays, and that would be okay with me. Well, I got an ROTC, and I loved it. I mean, I loved yelling and cursing and making people feel bad because that's what I thought <laughs> leaders did. I really thought, I get to tell you what to do, and you better listen or else. And what I found was that over the years between junior ROTC and then earning an ROTC scholarship to college, so spending four years in college and then another five and a half years in the military, what I found over that time is that leaders are made and not born. Because if you look at me today in in all my essence and glory, you would never believe that I was just awful, I mean horrible if you looked up terrible, terrible leader in the dictionary in 1989, you would have saw a picture of me putting my finger in someone's face. I mean, I was just so bad. But what I've learned over the years is that as you begin to understand what leadership is all about, anyone can lead. And the reason why I say from the PTA to the boardroom is because how often has that stay-at-home mom 
been, just been placed in the role as president of the PTA because she stays at home. And so they say, well, Carol, you don't work. You can be the president. And she's like, wait a minute, hold up. I don't have any leadership skills. And then you have people, CEOs, who have been managers for 25 or 30 years, and now they're thrown into these positions, and they're having to lead companies in, in, in times when we're in recessions, and they need to turn a dollar and turn a profit. And so what happens is you have to go from a from a comfortable place of being a stay-at-home mom or, or being a manager in the organization, and now everyone is looking to you to charge the course and, and tell us where we're going. And what I found is that, Everybody, when they're put in those positions, are able to lead. But what about the regular person, you know, the the concierge at the hotel or the cashier when you go and make a purchase at Walmart? They're leaders, too, because if if they're not doing what they're supposed to do, at the end of the day, the bottom line is impacted by the company. And my philosophy is that everyone wakes up every day wanting to do well. And now just take that a step further and just say that I'm the CEO of me incorporated. So if I have no other responsibilities, I am my own corporation. And how would I run my corporation? And if we all saw ourselves as leaders of even just the smallest person, which is us, all the way up to people who run multi-million dollar organizations, we would think differently because isn't there a different expectation for leaders? Don't we expect our leaders to do more and be better? And so if everyone in the world woke up and said, hey, I'm the leader of my life. I control my destiny and I'm the master of my fate. How much different would we, how much different would the world be? We'd be in a better position because everybody would take ownership and they would take responsibilities for who they are. And so my focus from a leadership perspective is on that everyday person, that person that really doesn't consider themselves a leader and they think that what they're doing is not important. It's having them understand the value that they bring to their own lives to their careers, to their families, and to their organizations. So basically that's where from the PTA to the boardroom originated. Gotcha. So so what would you say is the, is the, what makes somebody go from not being a leader to being a leader? What would be the, the biggest things to look for? Well, first of all, it starts with the belief because what happens is, and I don't, I don't know your background, but I, I spent nine years in corporate America, and what happened is we placed people in manager positions hoping that they would be leaders, and they would just run the day-to-day business, and they weren't proactive, and they weren't innovative. And what happens is we, we thought because they were hard workers on, as hourly employees that they would make these great leaders. And people get it confused. They they misconstrue managing with leading. And what I've learned throughout my studies is that managers can lead, but leaders can manage and lead, but managers can't lead. And the turning point is when a person starts to feel accountable for their actions. And once you do that, it often happens with people when they're when they're having a normal life, and then they get married, and then they have children, and then they feel this responsibility to do things differently. And so it's really almost like this internal clock that just ticks and ticks and ticks, and then the alarm goes off, and they go, oh, my goodness, I'm responsible for this. And what happens is sometimes it's forced upon people. I mean, sometimes you're just thrown into a position and you realize, okay, I have to control the situation and change it. And then sometimes, like in my case, I actually realize, okay, I need to do something different. In order for me to be effective, I'm going to have to start leading. And that's, so it's basically just either it's, it's forced or by nature it's a, you're in tune with what's going on and you feel compelled to be responsible and, and become almost a model. 
First of all, how do you define what is a leader or leadership? Okay. From, from a leadership perspective, what, what leadership is, is it's an action where people can follow it to a desired end state. And a leader is someone who, number one, takes accountability for themselves and their actions. So as, as the Enron scandal broke and people started running and hiding, none of them were considered leaders, in my opinion, because they didn't take ownership over what had happened. No one said, hey, you know what, all of this is my fault or, you know, both of us share in this problem. They all just said, well, you know, we didn't know, and this, and it was this big hoopla about who was actually responsible. And obviously a couple people ended up going to jail because of it, but at no point was it really at the beginning like, hey, this is my problem. And so what happens is as, as, as a true leader, we will own all that we are responsible for, good, bad, and different, right or wrong. Secondarily, leaders often will give the credit when things are going well to someone else, if you if for example, if you turn $10 million profit for an organization, the leader will say, well, it was because of my team that we were able to do this. And then if something goes wrong, they'll be the first person to raise their hand. Not only that, but leaders also are very innovative and they're forward thinking, and they give you a vision of where you're going. So they say, we're here today, and in three years, this is where we plan to be. And that's what causes people to be drawn to them because they feel like, okay, you know what's going on and you're getting ready to take us into our next evolution or our next direction. Okay. So what is realistic leadership? Well, realistic leadership started from I, I, I wrote my first book. I'm actually working on two other books. But my first book, when I started it, it was a very horrible title. It was 101 Leadership Tools to Success. And I thought this was going to be such a great title. And I went on Google, and my business partner suggested that I go on Google and look at some of the topics that were out there. And I had ten different titles for my book. And every title that I put out there, was it was either all exactly the same or very similar to it. And then I thought about it, and it didn't feel right. None of that, it felt very theoretically-ish or very textbooky. And I'm just not that type of person. I'm very realistic, very transparent. And so I thought, okay, well, if this is Dr. Donna's book, then it should be about Dr. Donna. And I came up with the title Real Leaders because I consider myself a real leader. I'm not, I'm someone that's approachable and if you, I'm flawed and I take feedback and I know I'm a work in progress and I believe that that is realistic. And real is actually an acronym. And so it stands for realistic, effective, authentic, and leader led because those four words describe realistic leadership, mm. and that is the principles for realistic leadership. So in order to be a real leader, you have to be realistic. You have to know what your strengths are. You have to know what your opportunities are. You have to know when to ask for help. You have to know when to take a hard stance. You have to know the hard right over the easy wrong. To be effective, in order to be a great leader, you have to be effective, because if not, someone's going to dethrone you. They're going to stone you and tell you to get out of there. So you definitely have to be effective. And then from an authentic standpoint is leaders need to be transparent. People need to trust you. They need to value what you say, and they need to believe what you say. And all of that is wrapped up in authenticity. And then finally, the L in real is leader-led because you have to say, here's where I'm going, and I want you to come along with me, but I want to be the person that's blazing the trail. So I'm not going to ask anybody to do something that I'm not willing to do because oftentimes managers will say, well, go do that but they won't help you or they won't go with you. But a leader-led person or a leader-led leader will say, here, let's go together. Let's figure this out together. 
and that's basically the concept behind realistic leadership. Where where is a place where you've had to go and lead in this type of you're saying you wouldn't do ask anybody to do something you wouldn't do so where's a place where you've had to go that was really uncomfortable? I will tell you there there were plenty of times in the military and I'll give you one good example is I was afraid of heights. <laughs> and I for four years was able to avoid heights in the military. And I went to my last duty assignment before I exited the military. I had to go to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which is home of the 101st Airborne Air, I mean, Air Assault Division. And 40, at that time, 48% of the aircraft for the military was stationed there. And I was a captain. And in order to command a company, you had to have air assault wings. And then I was going to Fort Campbell to be a company commander. And so I had to go to air assault school. And I couldn't climb up the rope because I'm very small. I'm, I, at that point, I was 130 pounds. I'm 5'6", and just very slender build. And I had to figure out how to climb up this rope. Now, I'm, I'm a captain, so all of the privates and all of the enlisted people are looking at me, wanting to make sure that I get up this rope because there's this high expectation for you. And every time I practiced, I was never able to get up the rope. Finally, on the day we entered air assault school, by the grace of God, I made it up the rope, made it through the obstacle course, and I made it into air assault school. Well, from there, we had to do all of these tying knots and all of this, and I am not mechanically inclined at all. And so I'm at home all night up trying to get these ropes tied exactly how they're supposed to get tied. And it's just a very, very stressful 10-day course. I finally make it all the way through day nine, and I get ready to do a la one of the last procedures, and I miss the step. And so they restarted me. And I'm thinking most people would have just quit. There were a lot of officers when they got restarted, they didn't go back because what happens is they put this big giant T on your helmet, and so now everybody knows that you're a restart. And I went and talked to my battalion commander, and he said, well, you know, Captain Thomas, you don't have to go back. You can wait. And I said, no, I'm going back tomorrow. So I had to go home and brush, dust myself off and put that T in front of my number and go back. And the reason why I went back was because I wanted my soldiers to know that it's okay if you miss a step, but you have to finish. You started air assault school, so you need to finish. And then I went through the third phase all over again. And as I was rappelling out of the helicopter, I, the, the helicopter went back up, and I had to hold on to the ropes. And I was so afraid that I was going to have to get restarted again that I held on to the ropes too tight. And the ropes went up and ripped all of the skin off of my hands. Oh. And so, yes, I had 19 first and second degree burns on my hand. But what happened was I still needed to do one more repel. So the medics, I told them, wrap my hands up, I'm going back up. They wrapped my hands up in gauze. They gave me this, these big giant gloves, and I had to have my rucksack on and my weapon, slide back down 90 feet in the air, and then go home. And then the next day I had to come back in 80-degree weather, carrying my 40-pound my rucksack with my weapon, and march. 12 miles in less than three hours because I needed to finish air assault school. And, I mean, by the time I finished, I had blood and pus and everything just oozing from my hands, but I finished. And so at that point, I did that because I did not want any soldier to ever be able to say, I can't make it through air assault school, ma'am. And I, because I could tell them, hey, I know how you feel. I was restarted. My hands were bleeding and pus and burned, and it took three and a half weeks for me to be able to take a shower without yellow gloves on. But I did it. So that would be my example from the military. That's quite and then when I was <laughs> Then when I was in corporate America, I, I worked in, in a warehousing environment when I was in Michigan, and it was a strong union presence there. And we were always having problems with, with 
team members walking out, and it was nothing that I could do. They would go home, and the work still needed to be done. And what I did was I learned how to perform every job in that warehouse outside of driving a forklift because I'm not good with the car. You definitely don't want me on a forklift. And every time somebody would leave, I would go and change my clothes and go out there and pick. And if it meant picking 4,000 cases of of batch order or picking on the module or picking bulk orders, and I mean, you would think that chips aren't heavy, but you pick them over eight or nine or ten hours, and, and trust me, your arms are burning. And every, I mean, it would happen at least once a week, at least for like the first year I was in that position. And I went out there every day, and I would go out there singing, and I would go make sure we had snacks and all of that, and I would take my breaks with the team because I wanted them to know that even though someone left, I was always going to be there for them. And that would just be my two examples of of being leader-led. You you were making me think in the first example of uh, that movie with Demi Moore, um, Oh, I can't think of it where she plays. She G.I. Jane. G.I. Jane. Yeah. You just really made me think of that movie. Um, by the way, one thing I always do whenever I meet anyone who has uh, served uh, the United States, I say thank you. So I want to say thank you for serving our country. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, it was a pleasure to do it. So we have somebody's calling in. Oh, yeah, one person calling in from the 702 Area code, so uh, that caller, I'm going to see what question you have for Dr. Donna. Hello. Hello. Hi, what's your question? I want to ask what was the biggest challenge that Dr. Donna had, but after listening to what she has said so far, it <laughs> seems like every step of her life has been a big challenge, but maybe that's something that's monumental in her life. What would be the biggest challenge that she has had to overcome? Okay, okay. I would I would say that the biggest challenge I had to overcome was leaving corporate America. And the and the reason why is because I all I knew growing up was to make sure that you had a job and you had a career. And it was so difficult for me to leave. And even after I landed in the hospital and had stress and panic attacks and the doctors wanted me to take Xanax to go to work every day, I still struggled with it because I was afraid that I didn't have what it would take to run a business on my own. And to be able to leave corporate America at the height of my career, making almost six figures, and walk away from it to start my own business for my health and to be able to take care of my daughter was very challenging for me because I thought about, oh, my goodness, what, what if this doesn't work? I have this child to take care of. All I know is how to be in the military and how to work in corporate America. What if my products don't sell? What if I'm not good at, at coaching and speaking? What if I can't make it? But I just had to, my family was very supportive in my decision to leave, and they knew that I wasn't happy, and I knew that I wasn't happy. And I finally just turned in my, my resignation, and I took that leap of faith. And I'm so excited that I did I, I did it because my life has just never, it's been so blessed and just so fulfilled that it's just amazing. It was just the best decision for me, but it was the most difficult decision or challenge that I had to face. Wow. Okay. Right. Thank, Thank you for your question. Thank you, Carl. You're welcome. Okay, that was that was very uh, very powerful. Thank you. You're welcome. So um, I have a bunch of questions for you. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what what's the uh, one of the things that uh, that I deal with uh, as a coach uh, quite a bit is helping people with goals. Uh, I want to ask you what's the what would you say is the key to staying motivated to achieving goals? 
I would say the key to staying motivated to achieving goals is to stay focused. And I talk about that in my book, is that if you remain focused, no matter what is going on, you are going to be able to achieve your goals. As soon as you lose focus or you become distracted, then you're either not going to accomplish the goal on time or at all because you've been derailed. And there have been numerous times in my career and in my, my college years where no matter what was going on outside of me, I knew that graduation was the focus or completing this project was the focus. And so I remained focused and true to it. Another aspect of, of making sure that you stay focused is to write your goals down every day. And even if you're mm -hmm. just going after one goal, if you, you I have so many three-by-five cards, I should buy stock in a three-by-five card company because <laughs> I'm always writing something on a three-by-five card. But what happens is when you start writing that goal down every day, it gets in your subconscious mind, and then it just becomes a habit. And so you do everything that you need to to make sure that you're accomplishing that goal. For example, when I was writing my book, I needed to go to bed at the same time and I needed to wake up at the same time because I needed to level up. And by doing that, no matter seven days a week, Monday through Friday, I went to bed at 10, and Sunday through Friday, Saturday, I went to bed at 10 at night and I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning because I wrote in the morning when I was at my most creative point. Mm -hmm. And what that did was obviously with a full-time job and taking care of my daughter, I was still able to write my book in four and a half months because of that regimen. And so I just stayed focused on I need to get this book done and this is the best way that I'm going to be able to do that. Now, did, that, did your military career really help prepare you for a life of discipline then? No, my unfortunately, my mother and my aunt said I came here this way. <laughs> <laughs> they said I have just been disciplined and focused and organized from the womb. It's just a part of my being is, is who I am. What I, I believe that the military allowed me to do was it, be, it allowed me to become desensitized to a lot of what was going on. I was focused, but to be able to be laser focused, I mean, if you're in, on, at the shooting range, if you're in your lane, you can't focus on to the left or to the right because you're going to miss your target. So I will, I will say that the military helped me to have laser focus and, 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 mm. and stay on that goal until it was absolutely achieved. So tune out all of the noise around me and just go for it. So for the average person who is not born the way you were um, mm -hmm. uh, how about some like what would be some tips so you talk about staying focused what, how do you stay focused what's a what's a, a good strategy for keeping focused and keeping the discipline that you have naturally what would be how what might you recommend to the not so blessed with discipline gene person? okay what I will tell you is that there are four types of people in our, uh, that exist, and they're adders, dividers, subtractors, and multipliers. And when you set out to, we'll say someone says, I'm going to finish my four-year degree, because that's simple, okay? Right. I'm going back to college. I'm going to finish my degree. Now, what happens is there are going to be people, and let's say the person is 30 years old. That, this will make it a little bit challenging. And they're married, and they have one child. And so the significant other says, you can't go back to school because we have this baby, and who's going to help take care of the baby? And then their parents say, well, yeah, you should go back, and we told you to go back earlier in life, but you didn't. But, yeah, you do need a degree, but I don't know if that's good before your family. And then you have a person at the office that's saying, you know what, I support you going back to school. The company's going to pay for it. You're going to get that next promotion. Just get on the accelerated program and go ahead. And then one of your buddies says, yeah, I support you going too. Now, what's going to happen is your friend and the person at work, although they're adders and multipliers, because 
they're not related to you and you don't have like a family relationship with them, mm-hmm. the, your your family, what they say is going to have a more negative impact on you. And it's, that's what you're going to hear more than what your friends are saying. But what you need to do is sit down with your family members and tell them, I understand that you don't support what's going on right now or you don't understand it. But what I need you to do as I go through this process is to not talk about it at all because your negative energy is only going to make it take longer and I'm not going to be successful. So what I ask of you is that we just don't talk about it. Here's the schedule. Here's when I'm going to be available. Here's when I'm not going to be available. And this is how long it's going to take me. So for 18 months, I just need you to just be patient and don't say anything. And then spend more of your time with your friend and the mentor at work until the process is done. Because one way that we can get lose focus is all of that negative talk coming from outside, and then they walk away, and now we have all of this negative talk in our heads, and we begin to believe the negative. For some reason, it's so much easier to believe the negative than it is to believe the positive. And again, write those goals down every single day. And when you find yourself, I have another little trick that I I learned from my vibrancy coach, El Swan. I wear green rubber bands from Whole Foods on my wrist when I'm trying to eliminate a negative habit. And any time that person loses focus or they find themselves drifting, what they need to do is just put the rubber band on their wrist and then pop the inside of it so that it it stings and hits their pulse. And what that does is that sends a, a, a trigger to your brain and your brain doesn't want to feel that anymore, so it stops that behavior immediately. And within 21 days, that all of that negative energy will go away because it takes 21 days to develop a habit. So, again, mm-hmm. recognizing who the negative and the, the subtractors and the dividers are in your life and spending as minimal time as possible with them, maximizing your time with your adders and your multipliers, staying focused by writing your goals down every single day, and then use the rubber band snap technique if, if everything else is, not working for you. Yeah, I, I did a few years ago the uh, Millionaire Mind Intensive course. Are you familiar with that? I Laura am. Becker? Yeah, they used right. a rubber band in that. And, that was, and you had to really not just snap it a little bit. They had you pull right. it back so far mm-hmm. and do it like ten times in a row until it really hurt. Right. And it really established that link. And, man, that was right. really effective. It was. And I've been able to eliminate my filler words, slow my speech down, stop using profanity, Stop having negative thoughts all from that process. So anytime I recognize that I'm I'm demonstrating a negative habit or behavior, I grab the rubber band and I use it until that behavior doesn't exist anymore, and then I'll just put it back in the drawer again. So, you know, uh, I'm thinking of two new products for your your site. Uh, One should be the Dr. Donna rubber bands, of course. Okay. And then the Dr. Donna 3x5 cards. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Let me write that down. Okay. So those should be available uh, like immediately. I'm I'm ready okay. to go online. <laughs> How do you like them apples? Okay. I do. I like that. <laughs> Show you the money, and I'll, I'll you know I'll give you some some uh, affiliate rights because oh, you thank helped you. come up with the idea. You're welcome. <laughs> so um, you know I, I tell you I'm I'm now first of all I, I put myself in that category of people who are not born with a disciplined gene. I'm I'm also. Uh, uh, a well-known procrastinator, and um, you know, in fact, I was been getting around to doing this show with you for five weeks, right? Right. <laughs> and um, but seriously, uh, procrastination. Let's talk about that. Why is procrastination the enemy? Procrastination is the enemy, I, and I talk about that as well in my book. Is because there isn't any value in it, and procrastination 
is it's like a thief. The, the quote that I have in the book, and all the quotes in my book are original quotes, it says, there is only one thing gained from procrastination. Nothing. And if you think about procrastination, it's a thief, and it's come to rob you from your ability to achieve your destiny. If, if you think about all the award shows that exist, there has never been, and I would pray that there would never be, an award show for the greatest procrastinator. Well, they <laughs> haven't gotten around to that show yet. <laughs> exactly, they haven't. <laughs> and the problem with procrastination is, I mean, if you think about it, say, for example, you're having a dinner at your house this weekend, and you're, going to, and you're a great cook, but you decide the dinner is at 7 on Saturday, and you decide, oh, I'll go to the store Saturday morning. And then Saturday morning you find out you have a coaching client that had to change their schedule, so now you have to coach them on Saturday. And then you realize that the, the linen for the, the, the dining table needs to be washed, so then you wash that. And then all of a sudden, a meal that you were going to take six hours to prepare, now you only have four hours to get it done. So you rush and you prepare something that you're not really good at or it's not going to be that great, and then you try to present it so you make a great table setting and, and get some wine that may or may not be good if you choose to drink. And then you're sitting at the table, and, and people were looking forward to this because they know what a great cook you are, and everyone sits down at the table and they start to eat it, and they're all making faces. And then it's like, mmm, and then you're like, hey, how is it? How is it, you know, and they're like, well, it's not your best work, and we've had better. And then you sit there and you know that you waited until the last minute to go grocery shopping. You waited until the last minute, and now you couldn't prepare the meal, and now the evening is sort of ruined simply because you decided to procrastinate. So your best foot wasn't, your best effort wasn't put forward, and now your friend, family and friends are just like, mmm, so then the next time you get ready to have dinner, they may or may not, as many people may or may not show up, simply because now you've lost credibility with people who are closest to you. And we often do it with projects and just all of our lives. When you when you wait until the last minute, yeah, it only takes a minute, but is that your best? And so it makes sense to just take small projects or, or whatever it is that you're working on and work on it day by day. If you have a project that's due in three weeks, just take 20 minutes a day for, for the next 21 days to work on that project. And I guarantee your best effort will be put forward in those 21 days. It, it just You don't ever give your best when you procrastinate. I know very few people who are successful at it. Well, that's something I needed to hear. So okay. thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> what is your philosophy, your philosophy about excuses? Uh, I don't like, if you want to get on Dr. Donna's bad side, give me an excuse, and you will meet my alter ego. You know, Beyonce has her alter ego. She calls her Sasha Sears. I have my alter ego, and her name is Dee Dee from the D. And she (laughs) will, yes, she will tear you a new one if you try to give her an excuse. When I was in the military, I had a sign in my office that said the maximum effective range of an excuse is zero. Because what an excuse is, is it's just a, a way of someone saying, I can't, or I don't, I just, I really tried to do it, and I just, and, and it's such a, it's a, it's a crock. It's just, it's, it's a bunch of crap, and it's a, a way for people to not hold themselves accountable. It's the blame game, and I don't have time if, if in my history and in my life, I've been through enough to know that you can get through whatever you want if you're focused and that's what you want to do. I mean, think about how long people stood in line to get the new iPhone. That, that, that just took relentless, if that's something that they wanted to do. And when you want to do something, you will do it. 
mm-hmm. when you don't want to do it, you're going to make up an excuse of why you couldn't get it done. <laughs> right. You'll have 75 reasons why it couldn't get done. And real leaders own it. It's better to say, you know what, I didn't feel like doing that, and that's why it didn't get done. As opposed to saying, well, you know, the phone rang, and then I had 17 emails, and then I started texting, and then I had to go on Facebook, and then I had to go to this conference, and then I went back and I had to go to a conference call. And, I, and you just start running. Just say you just be honest and authentic and, and just tell the truth and say, I really just didn't feel like doing that. I didn't, or I was afraid. I didn't know I was capable. Just be honest. And so when, when people come to me with excuses, again, they meet Dee Dee from the D, and they, for some reason, never, ever have another excuse for me again. I don't know what it is about that interaction with her. <laughs> the sergeant, Dr. Donna, that's what it is. <laughs> I never have a problem with them again. Every now and then, people have tried to use excuses with me twice, and that hasn't happened a third time, for sure. Did you ever see the old Far Side cartoons, the very surreal cartoons in the newspaper? And Gary. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. There was one of my favorite ones was a classroom of dogs. And there's a teacher, a dog teacher, and saying, okay, here we go again. Did any of you, uh, which one, ones of you did not eat your homework? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's like the world's biggest excuse is the dog ate my homework, right? Exactly. A classroom exactly. of dogs, they all eat their homework every day. Exactly. Yes, that, that's pretty much how I feel about it, exactly. <laughs> okay. So, um, what, what would you, um, what's the, the best and the worst jobs you've ever had in your life? Okay, I would say, let's go with the worst job. I'll take the worst job for 100, Alex. Okay. The, <laughs> okay. One, the worst job, I had an ROTC scholarship to college, but it only covered my sophomore through senior year. My freshman year, my parents had to pay for me to go to college, and I went to Michigan State for my freshman year. I ended up graduating from Eastern Michigan. And so, nevertheless, money was very tight because we did not know that I, they were, we were going to have to pay for that first year. At that time, it probably was like $12,000 a year to go to Michigan State. And what happened was, obviously, I, need, I needed to get a job in order to help the family with the, the financial aspect of funding my education. And I was runner-up for best dress, so you can just imagine I was fabulous in high school. I wore high heels and suits, and mm. the hair was always perfectly coiffed and all of that. And I had to go from high up on my ladder to serving food to my high school classmates in the cafeteria. And I went to a very large high school. Uh, my graduating class was 610 students, and probably 300 of them went to Michigan State with me. And it was awful. I had this polyester green smock with this white trim because that's Michigan State's colors with this big green netted hat baseball cap that didn't really fit my head. And I had to make eggs at this, the side area where you, you, have, you have that extra grill. Mm-hmm. And I had to make omelets and eggs for them and egg beaters. And they loved it. They would come in there every morning and humiliate me every morning <laughs> because I was now their server. And then I would go to class sometimes smelling like grease with that green smock on and then have to come back in the evening and, and work the dinner shift. That was my, yeah, my worst job ever. Wow. Did they actually humiliate you or did you just feel that way? Oh, no, they did. They came and oh. said, make sure my eggs have cheese in it and, you know, I want them fried over medium and all kind of, I want egg beaters, I don't want regular eggs. and Just nonsense. They did it. They were cruel. <laughs> oh, wow. Do you want to hear my worst job ever? Yes, what was your worst job ever? Worst job ever. This was a, um, I worked, uh, 
years and years and years ago, I lived in the, for a couple of months in Waco, Texas, believe it or not. Oh, my and goodness. I, and I, I was taking these crazy temp jobs and doing whatever I needed to do to, to make it work there. And I was working midnight shift in this factory um, that made extruded plastic pipes. And one day they said to me, okay, we need you to go and clean out the, the exhaust. There was this thing that collected all the plastic dust from all, from like, you know, from the shift, every shift, and it got backed up. And I had to go into this thing, and with a mask on and goggles and a vacuum, this giant vacuum, and vacuum up all the plastic dust. And I, you know, I was melting in there, and I, I took my mask off, I, God knows what, I, what, what, what you know, kind of stuff I breathed in during that time. It was, it was unbelievable. And, and they had somebody who must have had to do that every day. I mean, I just did it that one time. Oh, but my that goodness. one day, that was the worst, the single worst job I've ever had. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah I'll Oof. never forget it. Mm. Oh, no, I it's, can just imagine. It's a good motivator, though, right? It is to get out of there. <laughs> yeah, it's like no, let's not ever be in this kind of situation again where we have to say yes to something like that. Right. I'm telling you, I was able to stay very focused while I was cooking those eggs. I just kept saying, one day this will be over. One day this will be over. One day this will be over, and it's over. Yeah. By the way, do you hear the ambulances in the background? I do. I yeah. do hear them. They're coming to take me away. It's really, <laughs> it's really sad. Every time I do this show, they come and take me away. Um, if anybody not not has has not listened to the show before, I live uh, right opposite a major hospital, so sometimes it gets a little crazy over here, like it's right out the window. Um, wow. And they usually wait until I start my show to to bother coming by. They they leave they can't be bothered before or after, but during the show they almost always <laughs> show up. It's amazing. Wow. True. Oh my goodness. So, so Doctor Donna, why do you believe that we are no different than? Billionaires and millionaires. I'm glad you asked that question. I just did a speech in my Toastmasters meeting about the, you, everyone. You're, everyone has the same amount of time. And the reason why we're no different than billionaires and millionaires is because all of us have 24 hours in a day. No one gets 24 hours and 30 minutes or 23 hours and 20 minutes. We all have 24 hours in a day. And the difference between billionaires and millionaires and thousandaires and hundredaires <laughs> is how we spend those 24 hours in a day. What I found in doing my, the research for my Toastmaster speech was that, did you know the average person who works a 40 or 50 hour week job, they have 3,228 hours per year of idle time mm. after you take out sleeping and working. 3,228 hours. Did you know that that's how much time you had left over after you sleep and work? I did not know that. So now that you know that you have 3,228 hours, can't you do something great with that extra time? Of course. Right. And so that is how billionaires and millionaires have become so successful is because they have learned to manage 24 hours in a day. They understand that it's 24 hours in a day. They understand that it's seven days in a week. They understand that it's 365 days in a year and a quarter on leap year. What happens to most people that work normal nine-to-five jobs or jobs Monday through Friday is they view their week as Monday through Friday or Sunday through Thursday if they work an off shift and two weekend days. Mm -hmm. But when they start to see it as 
the first of all, the, if you look at a calendar, the first day of the week is Sunday, and most people use that as their rest day. What I recommend is that people use Saturday as their rest day and then approach Sunday as the first day of the week. And the reason why you do that is if you look at Sunday as your first day of the week and you go to your primary job on Monday, you don't have the Monday morning blues anymore because you've already started your week. Mm. If you look at it as Sunday is my rest day, then you don't want to go to work on Monday. A lot of people end up attending a church service on Sunday anyway, which it means that their time is interrupted anyway. Most people don't have to do anything on Saturday. Or if they have a kid's activity, it's in the morning for the most part, and then they have the rest of the day to get their activities done. If you look at Sunday as the first day of the week, then you can attend a church service, you can record your favorite sporting event, start a load of laundry, go grocery shopping or whatever, and then on Monday you've taken care of all of those tasks and now you're ready to go work. And then that gives you the momentum to get through the rest of your week. And then you maximize your time. Another part of time management is that people need to understand that you're going to get pockets of time throughout the day. And so what do you do with those hours? For example, did you know that the average American spends about 24.3 minutes per day commuting back and forth to their job? Right. If you, unlike you, or you could still, well, no, you can't because you're riding a bike. But for people who are in cabs or in, or on the subway or driving, they can use that time to listen to audiobooks, learn a foreign language, and just take care of anything that's audio-related. Also, how many times have you gone to the doctor's office, the dentist's office, the barbershop, and they're running behind? And now you have this extra 20 or 30 minutes. If you're working on a project, why not keep that project with you, and now you have 30 minutes where you can begin to work on that project? And this is what billionaires and millionaires understand, is that they know that throughout my day there are going to be some lulls in time where I can maximize or capitalize off of that time. And when people start to understand that, then they're going to be able to fulfill their destiny, accomplish their goals, and have a life that's fulfilled, and they'll just be happier because they're looking at it as 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week, 365 days in a year. And you know, you know what I hear from a lot of people, and this is, I think, kind of the tragedy of this. Um, the, I think the, the, the killer words are, oh, I have my shows. They have their... American Idol, they have to watch their TV shows. They have, mm -hmm. uh, I need my downtime to just do nothing. Um, so you have a lot of people who, they like to take those, how many did you say, 3,000 something hours? 3,228. 3,228 hours. They they would like to take about 3,000 of them to veg, veg out. And I have a, a there there was a study done by Sleep Dex and, and not Sleep Dex, I'm sorry, a, a PhD doctor from University of California. If a, the average person lives to be 65 years old, watching four hours of television a day, they will have watched 10 years of television at the age of 65. Wow. <laughs> wow. And my recommendation, I know, you're, you're like dying over there now, like 10 years. Can you believe that? You're on your deathbed. You're like, I watched TV for 10 years. But my recommendation is that most people have, have – cable down, or I mean very few people have the digital box, is record your favorite show mm -hmm. and then watch it at a later time because the average commercial break is between two and three and a half minutes. And what you can do is save, if it's, an, if it's a half an hour show, you save about seven minutes, and if it's an hour show, you save almost 17 minutes 
because you fast forward through the commercials. Now, I know advertisers are going to get mad at me and kill me, but I'm just saying that will save you time. And if you're watching two to three shows a night, you've gotten an hour back because you fast forwarded through all of the commercials. So that's just another recommendation. Yeah, or just give it up. Give it up, too. I know, it's but like, there are some people. It's like who, who has really accomplished tremendous things as a result of spending most of their time watching television? I don't know who those people are. I don't either. But just for the people who want to watch it, I mean, I would, I would recommend if you watch four hours, cut it down to two and then cut it down to one. Mm-hmm. and then watch it when you feel the need. But the problem is people don't know what else to do. They have they don't have another activity to do. So they don't they, people don't really like reading. So if you recommend audiobooks, they go, eh, I don't know. But if they became more active and their mm-hmm. lives were more fulfilled, then they wouldn't be stuck in front of this television imagining that they have a different life because they're stuck in this reality TV show. So that's about having a more fulfilled life. So if they had, if they didn't go to a job that they couldn't stand, and they actually were married to somebody that they loved, and they really liked their kids, then they would. <laughs> that's terrible to say, <laughs> but they would, they would interact with their family more. You know what I'm saying? If they had, a, if, imagine if you had a job that you loved, then you would go there and you'd be so fulfilled that when you came home, you'd be excited and you'd have a family dinner, and then you'd sit down with the kids, do the homework, and have a, a game night or something like that. People need to think outside of, I go to work, I come home, I watch television, I have a nightcap potentially, I'm off to bed. I wake up and I do it. And the weekend comes and I try to put everything I couldn't do during the week into this weekend. If they stopped doing that and and just, again, viewed it as 24 hours in a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year, I am going to spend my 3,228 hours enjoying life, then it would be different. But that's the commonality that we share with billionaires and millionaires. Gotcha. So we'll have another caller with a question calling from the 313 area code. So, caller, I'm going to put you on. Hello, and welcome to our show. Hi, thank you. What's your question for Dr. Donna? I'd like to know when did she know that she was a leader and not a manager when she was in corporate America? Okay, great. She's working a corporate job. Okay, well, I knew that I was a leader and not a manager in corporate America when all of those people kept leaving <laughs> and I kept having to do their job that I was not getting paid for, and I, and I didn't fire them. And that's when I really knew that I had just, I was in my leadership path in, in corporate America. And even when they had problems, I would still help them, and a lot of them were going through, like, issues outside of work, I would still sit down in my office and listen to them, knowing that they had left me with four, five, six, seven, eight hours of work. That's when I really realized that I had become not only a leader but a real leader because I wasn't upset with them. I didn't hold a grudge. I didn't go home and pray mean things would happen to them. I just really cared. (laughs) I really genuinely just wanted them to be successful, I wanted to be successful, and then I wanted the company to be successful. And that's when I knew this is more about, this is more than just managing. This I, this is leadership, 100% leadership. Very cool. Okay, thank you, caller. Thank you. Um, so, Dr. Donna, oh, by the way, uh, what are you a doctor of? I actually have a doctorate in organizational leadership, so... I have studied it. I've, I've been a leader. I've studied being a leader, and now, in theory, I'm an expert. 
So according to Malcolm Gladwell, who says you need 10,000 hours in any field to be an expert, I'm considered an expert in leadership now. Okay. I was going to tell you that it hurts when I go like this, but you're not that kind of doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I would tell you, go see a medical doctor. Okay, yes. thank you. <laughs> Um, so I wanted to ask you uh, about the principles you've developed, the colorful leadership principles. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, what I've done is I, because of my extensive research in leadership and knowing I'm, I'm such a down-to-earth person and just realistic, I, when I was going through my, my doctorate program, I was thinking, okay, I can't explain this to people. They're going to look at me like I'm crazy. They're going to think that it's like stereo instructions. There has to be a simpler way to make people, to empower people to become leaders. And what, from my first book, Real Leaders Wear Pink, pink is an acronym as well, and it stands for Powerful, Innovative, Natural, and Knowledgeable. And I got the idea from children. I mean, a lot of my ideas come from kids because that's how children learn, basically the principles and how adults learn for the most part. And if you go back to your first or second grade years, you used to get those drawings from the teacher, and it would have a, a scale on the side, and it would say, color all the number ones blue and then color all the number twos red, and color all the number threes green. And by the time you finished, you had this picture. And so it was colored by, it was basically colored by number. And children were able to see it, and we associate so much of what's going on in our lives with colors that I figured the best way to allow people from an everyday perspective to feel like they can be leaders is to make it colorful. I mean, who who wouldn't want to wear pink? I mean, if you think about it, if you say, hey, real leaders wear pink, most people, even men today, have a pink shirt in their closet. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, all I have to do is put on a pink shirt and I'm powerful now? Or all I have to do is put on a yellow shirt and I'm not going to worry anymore? And basically from that process, from that thought process, I've taken all of the primary colors in the crayon box and added a couple in there, and I've made them acronyms, and all of the acronyms help you in some type of leadership capacity. For example, like Real Leaders Wear Blue, it's about learning how to be effective. Or Real Leaders Wear Brown, it's about how to become an outstanding worker. And so what happens is you go through the training or you you are coached by me and you're using colors to associate with that particular feeling, and that's how you begin to use the habits formed throughout that process, if that makes sense. Yes. By the way, I had a a fellow on my show a couple of weeks, weeks ago named Denny Stockdale, I don't know if you know mm-hmm. who he is, but he is the master of acronyms, and we had a lot of we did a lot of acronyms on the show. So it's kind of interesting that uh, just a few weeks in a row I have, and uh, now you're the acronym, the queen of acronyms, apparently. The queen of acronyms, yeah. Yeah. People yeah. like acronyms; it's easy for Absolutely. them to remember, and they they can translate it into something that's doable. Oh, I agree. Well, I mean, the very first well, was was it really an acronym? But the very first thing I I remember. In music, every good boy does fine. Right, and then face for the spaces, yes. Exactly. That's my favorite, the first ones I remember, going back to like age, you know, zero, whatever it was. Exactly. See, they, they stay with you. Absolutely. So um, what's next for you, Dr. Donna? Well, what I'm working on right now is I'm working on two, my, uh, my next two books, Real Leaders Wear Green, and that's about time management because time is money. You like that, Real Leaders Wear Green. Oh, yeah. And then, <laughs> and it has some of the principles that we just talked about today, so you'll see the 3,228 hours in there, as well as the, the commonalities between millionaires and billionaires. And then also I have Real Leaders Wear Red, and Red in this instance stands for Read Every Day. And what that book is, is 300, right now it's 
391. I have to bring it down to 366 because each day people are going to read a Dr. Donna quote for the day with a little story up under it, and it will just help them relate to leadership and life. I also have my blog talk radio show that's out, and then for the rest of the year, I'm just out getting my book out in bookstores, and my goal is to have the book Real Leaders Wear Pink used in college courses from leadership, business, and women's studies. So that's basically how I'm going to end 2010. That sounds great. Are you going to be doing a book tour? I'm actually wanting to just really get it in the college circuit more so than because it's on Amazon right now, and if you go into mm-hmm. Barnes & Noble, it's there. But because I believe that leadership is so important, I want to get it to the college students because they're right, they're ready for it, they're like sponges, and it will help them so much in their lives. And really wanting to start there and then catapult it out to the rest of the world. Because yeah, right I think now, it's I mean, great. You know, for uh, people to get the, to get the leadership uh, skills and knowledge young, as opposed to waiting until they're, you know, forty. Right. Yeah. Because imagine if I had had my book when I was fifteen, I, I would have saved a lot of people's emotions. <laughs> exactly. I would have not. I mean, you know, there have been so many people that would have liked me instead of wanted to beat me up at, at the end of school day. <laughs> I, I find it hard to believe anybody wants to beat you up, Doctor Donna. Oh, I just, I was terrible. I really, I wish they had camera phones back then. I'm sure somebody would have videotaped me and, and tried to sue me because it was bad. <laughs> well, you know, I, I can relate to that. I mean, a lot, there are a lot of people who knew me growing up that would, they, they cannot get over who I am today compared to, to then. I was tremendously shy for one thing. Really? Oh my goodness. Tremendously shy. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've gotten up in front of large groups of people and I've, I've sung and, uh, all kinds of things, and I never would have done that growing up. Really? Wow. I was t- 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 terrified. Really? I oh, actually yeah. didn't speak until I was, I, there's a, a speech on my YouTube channel, until I was six years old, I mean, until I was 11 years old. From the time mm-hmm. I was born until 11, I only talked to my mother and my sister. I, outside of the house, I didn't talk to anyone. And then one day I just woke up and had this voice, and I've been making up for those first 11 years. <laughs> Wow. For the last 20, what is it, I'm 26 years, I'm 37 now. Yeah, so I, I, can, I can understand not wanting to speak to people. But it's amazing. Now we found our voice and people can't shut me up. <laughs> That's great. So uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to uh, anything you'd like to tell people on how to find you that I've said at the beginning of the show, but now I'd like to hear from you. Okay, well, you can find me on Twitter. I am on, you do twitter.com and then you do ask Dr. Donna, A-S-K-D-R-D-O-N-N-A. I'm also on Blog Talk Radio and that's ask-doctor, D-O-C-T-O-R, Donna, D-O-N-N-A. And then you can visit me at my website at www.thepowerstarters.com and I'm also on Facebook. You can have a fan page as well as a friend page. And I would love to hear from everyone because I know that everyone can lead from the PTA to the boardroom because leaders are made, not born. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dr. Dunn. I want to thank you so much for uh, being a phenomenal guest and giving us some great information. And we are going to be back next week. Uh, so everyone, please have an outstanding next seven days. We'll be back next Monday night. Good night. Good night. Thank you. You're welcome.